guess who's back? Back again. The ginger of love. Guess who's back? Tell a friend. Hey, friend. Tell us. Who's back? Hello, friends. Hey, bud. Hey, he's back. He's not fired. <laughs> we, we, I mean, we did say that he was fired, but that was a joke. We, we he love came you. crawling back in the rain. Pleading. Begging. He's like, please. Well, I just want to talk about Jesus. And we're like, fine. Oh. <laughs> well, welcome to the new... I think this is probably the best room that we've been in so thus far, to be honest. Uh, but we've got welcome to Carpet Jesus. He's the new addition to our it's our mascot. Our mascot, definitely for sure. But uh, definitely glad to have Mason back for sure. So He's Mason, bring us in. Give us that intro. Welcome to Cross Training, where we look at faith and practice through the lens of the Bible. Boom, boom, boom. Still, still messing with it. <laughs> awesome. Well, he's Mason. I'm Matthew, and Tanner's going to talk now. <laughs> so. Uh, I'm really excited about this chapter because, you know, even though this is Thanksgiving and Thanksgiving weekend and stuff like that, this is probably one of the most epic stories that we can truly be thankful for. And this is exactly uh, one of the most uh, gripping uh, parts of all of John to me. And I, this is the first time I've actually studied John 18 in depth. I've read, you know, I've read this chapter. We've we've read this and heard this through sermons throughout our whole life uh, of Jesus' arrest in the garden and his persecution and like the trial, the mock kangaroo trial and stuff like that. But actually sitting down and looking at all the caveats and the context clues and like, okay, so let's look at it at a whole and what the bigger picture is and kind of the small details in this really opened my eyes to certain things. And I want to mention a few things while we're in there, but like I highly recommend if you ever have the chance and the money, because it's not cheap, I would recommend going to Israel and going to Jerusalem and stuff like that, because actually going there and being where this situation took place kind of set up a new understanding and appreciation and almost like a a sobering, humble approach to reading this chapter. Um, I don't want to get too far into it before we like actually start reading, but just a quick little intro from my point of view. This book was... uh, book this chapter was interesting uh, to read through because it it allowed me to kind of see just the coolness of Christianity because I feel like and I'm about to talk about stuff that I have no right to talk about so take everything I'm about to say with a grain of salt I do anyway speaking hypothetically from like other uh, religions standpoint because I tried to talk about the same thing like last week and it didn't go too well for me but whatever um I feel like reading about the person that you worship dying is something that like wouldn't elicit hope, but the advantage of yeah. believing in Jesus yeah, and having yeah. that knowledge that like this this was God in the flesh and He was able to defeat death. Like reading about Him going through all this suffering and knowing that it was all according to plan just gives you that that feeling of dang, Jesus Jesus had it going on. Well, we actually has it going we on. actually get to see it in this chapter a little bit because like we know what happens afterwards. You know, I mean, so we yeah. know we understand the hope that was restored upon his persecution and death but yet here in a little bit we'll actually see that you know that's not the view that the disciples saw and so they probably saw zero hope in this whole situation so let's dive into it so starting in verse one because this is a chapter and it goes by verses verse one i'm gonna read verses one through three so after jesus had said these things he went out with his disciples so this is after the big prayer of the uh the Last Supper and stuff like that. He went across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. 
Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, because Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas took a company of soldiers and some officials from the chief priest and the Pharisees and came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. So Jesus leaves the city walls of Jerusalem, and he goes across this valley of the kings. And this valley of the kings is called the Kidron Valley, where we see here. And this is where in Matthew chapter 26 and 22, or Luke 22, Jesus prays about the hardship that he's about to face in, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, the valley of, of Kidron, it's, it's an interesting place because it literally is a valley below the city. And this is where, you know, a lot of uh, burial grounds and stuff like that. And if you go there today, this is there's a dispute between the Muslims and the Jews of like, okay, who has control of this? Who's being buried here? Who's being buried here? And there's just, you know, a, a, a quartering lining of who has control of this. And this is where you, you can actually see a lot of the old prophets buried, and you see their tombs and stuff like that. So it's, it's, it's quite interesting. So this is the Valley of the Kings. But this valley is downstream from the temple. And I thought, I didn't know this, but I, it, it, it makes sense. So th this valley was downstream from the temple, and there was sometimes called the Brook Kidron. And this is where a small stream was the drainage from the temple that was reddish due to the blood of thousands of Passover uh, lambs. And I thought that was interesting. I was thinking, wow, you know, how, what was going through Jesus' mind when he was going from Jerusalem city and crossing over this stream that was red of blood of the Passover of the lambs over a sacrifice of sins. And he's probably thinking in his mind, like, this is about like, my blood's about to be shed for the sacrifice. And so while he is going to this garden to pray and to, to, you know, I guess to get his last relaxing time in in the garden with his buddies, you know. Uh, he's probably thinking, and there's constant reminders of what's about to occur, and I thought that was interesting. So, And the garden of Gethsemane was this regular place for Jesus to visit, and I think this shows that he is not changing his schedule, even though he knows what's about to occur. What do you think the purpose uh, of John when writing this was with not including Jesus' prayer, like if if this cup would pass from me. Like, wh why do you think that's not included in here? Because that that's something that threw me off guard when I was uh, reading through it. Because it's like, wait, where where's the where's the prayer when he prays that? Because I thought it was in all the Gospels. I didn't know that that was uh, not included in the Book of John. I mean, that's a good question. I'm not 100% sure, but, I mean, he does make mention of the cup in this chapter yeah. in verse 11 yeah. of, like, uh, you know, Peter, I'm going to drink this cup. Don't take it away from me, basically. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I'm not—there might be some kind of deep theological answer to that, but to be right off the head, I have no uh, reason why. I mean, I'm glad that we have this prayer. I mean, I think it's very uh, telling of the whole situation anyways of why this cup was—why why Jesus freely took this cup of wrath upon himself. So, I mean, I, I don't know why it's in jo why it's not in John. Yeah, because um, when I was reading through it, because, I mean, obviously, like, well, I say obviously, but it might just be a me problem. Uh, the gospels really just kind of get mixed around in my head. Like, I'm uh, reading through one book and going like, oh, wait, I thought that Peter Walker on the Water was mm -hmm. in this one. Like, oh, no, not in this one, because uh, just this is one of the ones that didn't have that. Well, but with John, like, making it clear in the beginning of, of the book, saying, like, the his purpose in writing is to reveal that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So mm -hmm. you would think that having that prayer in there would be pretty important to that goal. So 
because keeping in mind that like these books were not just written haphazardly, like there was purpose in every syllable. So I'm just sitting here like, what, what's the reason? Like that, that's just something that I'm, I'm curious about. So I don't know. I mean, because I think it, it does show, and I was talking to uh, one of my friends about this while I was doing some studying at working too, but I find it interesting too that like there's certain things in the synoptic gospels that aren't in, like it, they're not parallel 100%. It's not like, hey guys, we got to get our story straight. You know, it's like we got to make sure that all the details are the same all the way through. I think it definitely with the human element of writing this, having, you know, it doesn't have, uh, John doesn't talk, doesn't say the Garden of Gethsemane. He just says the garden. But yet in other books, it says the Garden of Gethsemane. So they're like, there's little things in there that's not in other books. And to me, this shows evidence that these guys were eyewitnesses to the account because each eyewitness is the same, but yet there's a little small details in there that's not in there in other books. And to me, that shows it's like, okay, just like in a courtroom, two eyewitnesses to a different, to the same event, two different perspectives have two different stories, but yet of the same event. And I think this shows a little bit more evidential proof that this is a legit event, that Jesus was an actual dude and this actually happened and things actually did occur the way that scripture lays out. Even if there is some differences, they don't contradict yeah, I mean, I didn't necessarily expect us to have uh, an answer to that, but it's just uh, food for thought. Like, I'll, I'll probably do some research on that myself. It's just, uh, mm-hmm. I'm just spitballing here. Because that is something that, that fascinates me. Like, that's one of the things that I love about the Synoptic Gospels is those little differences between them. Like, it makes the Bible uh, seem a lot more, like, human. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know if that's a compliment or an insult, but <laughs> uh, it just, it makes... Um, it makes it feel heavier to me, if that makes any sense. More, more like a personal book, you know. Yeah. It's not just like this mindless, uh, like law that I'm reading for like the purpose of my religion. Like I'm reading the experiences of people that got to experience Jesus. It gives well, that shows. Feel. It shows that the, that this is real. Yeah. To me, I mean, I like the human aspect, and a lot of people would say it's like, well, see, it's written by men, so I mean, it can't be inspired by God. But m- the way that I view it is that, well, God used these men to write this, and that to me, that's comforting and to know that he, God used these dudes and used you know women in Scripture to further His kingdom and to accomplish the goal. And to me, that gives me hope that He can do the same with anyone in the present age that He did in the past age as well. So I think I, I like the seeing the kind of like human details of the way that scripture is written. So why do you think that uh, Judas thought it necessary to bring some soldiers with him to Jesus? Who I'm, since I'd imagine that Judas spent plenty of time uh, with Jesus, he was fully aware that he's not exactly one to defend himself physically, with the exception of that that temple story. But that was obviously a very different context. So. Do you think it was uh, just business as usual? Like you can't not get Jesus with some troops, or do you think there was like some purpose to Judas thinking that he would need to have some firepower on his side? Well, I mean, you think about how many people followed around Jesus. I mean, there's got to be at least a few of them that's going to be carrying around some swords and shields and stuff like that. So uh, I don't necessarily think it was more of Jesus and the disciples, but probably, you know, the few hundred or maybe even a couple thousand people that, typically followed him from place to place. It's just kind of like, yeah, I'm the guy that kind of ratted him out. So, so their, their expectation, they didn't know exactly what was going on. So they going for Jesus, and they thought, okay, there's going to be a few people here. So is that what you're kind of saying? Yeah, I, like I said, yeah. I, like, I think Judas is doing this because people are probably realizing by now who told on him or who like betrayed him or whatever. And so, you know, 
of course, like we said, Jesus wouldn't want to carry around a, a mm-hmm. sword and like that, but people that followed him probably did. Yeah, agreed. Because, I mean, Scripture will prove that to be true as well. Well, we'll spoil it, though. Yeah. But, and I mean, just keeping in mind, like, because I, I do like you bringing up um, about, like, how people that follow Jesus might be willing to, to do some stuff in Jesus' yeah. place. Because uh, keep in mind, who, who's one of the 12 disciples? Simon the Zealot. Like, more or less, Jesus had a literal terrorist in, yeah. <laughs> in his disciple group. So you'd imagine that 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 terrorist had a bunch of other friend terrorists that are all about bringing down the Roman government and are like super ready to take on some Roman guards when they come to to snatch up Jesus. Be like, oh, this is our chance. See, I thought it was interesting too because Judas basically rounded up these soldiers. You know, he was like the the, the head honcho of the guy. I mean, he, maybe he was the not. I don't want to say a scapegoat because I mean the Pharisees and Sadducees were the one, but yet. He was the front man behind being puppeted by many people puppeting him, I guess. Well, I don't know the correct terminology for that. But it sounds like even then Judas misunderstood the whole thing. It's like he almost forgot who Jesus was. So why the heck did he need all these soldiers? Well, what would be the only way for him to be tempted into selling Jesus mm-hmm. out? I mean, if you know Jesus, there's no way that you yeah. would want to— to sell them out. Well, let, let's look into a little bit more of the mind of, you know, Judas and the Sanhedrin court and the soldiers and stuff like that. So I did a little bit of research, you know, and when I re- first read this at glance, it, it says make mention they had torches and lanterns and stuff like that. It's like, okay, it's dark, whatever. And so I read, I was reading some commentary about it. I was thinking, well, there's more to this. Isn't it a little interesting? That the priest put placed this attachment with, with torches and stuff like that. And with these, they actually had the intention to search Jesus in the corners and caves, because there's caves around this area too, provided if Christ hid himself. So, and I was like, well, okay, so they're just looking in the dark. But yet, uh, one of the, uh, you know, a late theologian uh, and scholar, he, Clark, he says that in the 14th day of the moon's age, in the year Nisan, uh, and consequently, she appeared full and bright. So, in this time, Jesus was in the garden that Judas knew where he was at. The moon was shining bright. So, Really, they didn't need lanterns or torches or anything like that, but yet they took the lanterns and torches thinking and having the intent that Jesus was going to hide himself. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Like, what, like they definitely misunderstood you know, who I, Jesus is. I can understand that logic, though, because there are several uh, times in Scripture where it says that Jesus like kind of okay. hid away. Because it, his time wasn't there. Yeah, okay. Not yeah. out of cowardice, obviously, but yeah. just out of understanding, like, it's not my time yet. So Judas, for I all he knows, would be like, okay, so I know Jesus is anticipating dying, but he might not be thinking that today's the day. So we're going to make today the day. So I, I, I can, can see, see that. that. Okay. That that makes sense. I, I like I like that. I like that. Um, but also, I want to make mention of this, too. I, thought, I, I think this is interesting, that when Jesus, which this is recorded in other Gospels, that Jesus is praying, you know, the other disciples are asleep, a bunch of jerks. Uh, if you go to the Garden of Gethsemane, you can see the east gate of the temple. It's right there at the temple, like 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 we made of the Brook Kidron. Like the temple is right there. And if you're in the Garden of Gethsemane, you can see the temple. And it is about a 15 to 17 minute walk from the temple down to the, where the olive trees are in Garden of Gethsemane. It's nighttime, the moon's shining, but yet you see these torches and lanterns at the temple, going down backtracks and going down toward the Kidron Valley and up to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus ain't stupid. Jesus is not blind. And he sees, he probably sees these torches going down from the temple and going from the old city. And But the thing is, though, what is he still doing? He's praying to the fathers like, 
this is going to be a hard bear. He's probably looking and seeing up at the temple and looking at these dudes coming to get him. And his probably, you know, a friend that he, 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 he loves, a Judas, thinking, I'm about to be betrayed. This is about to happen. He says, I got 15 to 17 minutes. I can run if I want to. But what is he still doing? He stays in the garden and prays. And he tells his, his dudes to wake up a couple times. But needless to say, I, I think that shows Christ's powerful strength and courage, even in the midst of seeing that, I mean, soldiers coming to get him, he, that he still stayed. He's, he's, he's a strong dude, courageous man. I like him. All right. Well, next up we got um, verses 4 through 7. Uh, scripture says, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Shout out to Jesus for having proper grammar saying, Whom do you seek? <laughs> that's something I would do. Who you seek, boy? That's like, me. I am he. Like, guess what? That's not Jesus just sounded weird. That's just proper grammar. <laughs> I am he. It is I. <laughs> So let's talk about that a little bit. because That was for you, Mom. Yeah, well, she, I, I don't know. We'll see here. We'll see here. <laughs> so let's talk, about, let's talk about this little, there's a translation issue here too. I think this is interesting. That in the original Greek, the original Greek, when Jesus says, when the, when the question is asked, you know, uh, we're seeking Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, I am he in the translation. That's what it says in the English translations. But in the original Greek, it does not say that. In the original Greek, it says... I go, I me, which basically says, <laughs> that's Greek. <laughs> that's Greek. Hold on. Hold on. Go, hold on. I, wait, repeat that. I go, I me. That's, that's, that's the Greek. Okay. Listen to me. Listen to me. That's, that's not supposed to be funny. Well, I'm laughing. Okay. But the Greek for that, all it says, it doesn't say I am he. It says I am. The translators have actually throughout time have placed he at the end of that phrase, but the original Greek does not say I am he. It just says I am. Which, in all fairness, that's just an issue of translation from Greek to English. Yes, so. but, 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 how much of the parallel and the symbolism behind that all through Scripture from even with the conversation with Moses, I am, and the times that Jesus throughout his ministry have made the statement, I am. So when the statement is paralleled with I am, and when he's making that statement here in the original Greek, I am, he's automatically stating not only am I Jesus of Nazareth, but I am the Son of God. And so he is still holding firm to the idea, no, he is still holding firm to his identity of deity, yeah. even to the point of right here. So I think I think that's important to say yeah. there's a difference between I am he and I am. Yeah, I'm just retaining that there's still yeah. grammatical correctness because like yeah. going I know. Greek to English isn't one-to-one. I mean, it's like how in German there's lots of words that just there's literally no translation into mm-hmm. any other language for. So, yeah. Still, Jesus is still being grammatically correct here. I think, it's, I think it's pretty cool how that when Jesus asked them, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am. I'm he. And they basically don't say anything. They basically step back like. Well, it says they fell to the ground. Yeah, it? it says they yeah. fell to the ground. So it's just like uh, I wonder what that means. Like, was there was there an almost <sighs> involuntary worship? Like, oh, like being struck by the power I of God. I don't know. I don't think so. But I think they may be shocked. I think Jesus' authority. I think he's displaying true authority here. Or maybe he's pulling like some Elder Scrolls Dragonborn like spoon, <laughs> like Fusrumda, <laughs> and just like force them down. And then Jesus is like, 
dang it, we're trying to take down God. This ain't going to go too well, is it? <laughs> I don't know. I, I read that, and I, didn't, I never noticed that before. It's like, so it's like Jesus, and it's cool that Jesus had to remind them. It's like, who are you here for, guys? Like, I know who you're here for. Who are you here for? Yeah, which that's kind of funny because he's, as we've already mentioned, there have been several times where he had to kind of like sneak away because it wasn't his time yet. And now that it is his time, he's, Dude, he's, he's, he's to like take the cow He's flexing. Like, hey, you're supposed to. It's, hey, it's the time. Just, hey, cruise, I'm supposed to be sat. Just get on with it. Yeah. But, I mean, it's a, it's a hard cup to bear. He, I mean, he, he talks about in the other books. And so, I mean, it's not something he wants to prolong. I mean, he's human. So, I mean, it's he, he doesn't want – I mean, he, he wants to drink the cup. But yet, I mean, it's kind of like – it's like apple cider vinegar. No one wants to drink apple cider vinegar. Nobody. But it's good for you. You drink the whole thing, but you just just, just, just swallow it all. Get it all down. Why, why would you drink apple cider vinegar? Are you vinegar? kidding me? Apple cider vinegar is good for you, man. I don't think I've ever partaken, but okay. Well, I mean, that's what it's I, not something I drink on a daily basis. but Mix I mean, that with like Dawn dish soap, and it's like a good gnat trap. If you got like a got some gnats you got to kill. This is not a podcast for... Of, of, of helping to get rid of rodents, Matthew. Well, it's also not one to encourage projects. people to drink apple cider vinegar, we could. but here we are. This is D-Y-I... Uh, D- <laughs> D- wait. D-I-Y. D-I-Y nothing because you need to depend on Jesus, so it's D-O-J. Okay, that, that's, that's too... That's verses 8 through 11. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Verse 8 says, Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you, whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So there have been entire books written over um, that those two verses, verses 10 and 11. Uh, but I won't get out uh, ahead of myself. Let's uh, address the verses before that. Tanner, I'll just read from your notes here for a second. Uh, mm-hmm. Jesus says in verse 8, With authority, not a plea, let these others go, so that the prophecy will be fulfilled, that he did not lose one of them that the Father has given him. So do you think that that was a, a very specific uh, prophecy fulfillment, or can that be taken in multiple ways? Because, I mean, that is something that Jesus said already, so it, it had its own relevance. Like, I'm not entirely sure how to word this. I have a question, but I don't have it like perfectly worded in my mm-hmm. mind yet. Um, I don't want to sound disrespectful, but, <laughs> but do you think that some of the prophecies that like Jesus is fulfilling, like sound frivolous at face value? Kind of shallow almost. Yeah. <sighs> Cause there are multiple times throughout scripture. I can't remember if one of them is, uh, that I'm thinking of is in John or not where Jesus basically goes to a town just because, like, prophecy said that at some point he was going to go mm-hmm. to that town. I don't think so. Because, I mean, Jesus, he's what is it, what's the purpose of a prophecy, basically? is to prove the reliability and, of the truth that is of that prophet. Okay. Yeah. And so what's, a, you know, I think I, I, I think I may mention this before in the past about, you know, false prophets and stuff like that. But yet in Deuteronomy, there's a law of false prophets. If he makes, like, a hundred prophets, uh, prophecies uh, and know. if one prophecy is false then he's condemned and should be put to death Fair enough. so i think just like in a courtroom setting because i mean you, you read through scripture it's it's like a very courtroomish type of t- 
talk sometimes. And so with the with the core evidence, you want all the evidence in the world, even if it's like the tire tracks of certain set thing versus the murder weapon. You want to get as much evidence as you can. And so I think Jesus here is trying to place as much evidence before the disciples and before us as readers and people past, present, future, whoever reads this is like, okay, this is legit. Like, okay, he said this. This actually happened. And I think that also, too, I think that when John, Matthew, Mark, Luke are writing the Synoptic Gospels, that they're remembering what Jesus has said and then remembering the events that occurred. Yeah, so, yes, that is, yeah, I get what you're saying. I agree that, yeah, my question has been answered. <laughs> you didn't even yeah, have, did adds, you have a question? Yeah, it, it adds to the legitimacy yeah. there because even those really small prophecies that just on at face value sound like absolutely nothing like you literally just traveled to a town because someone at some point said that you're going to travel Mm -hmm. to a town but that i mean that makes it unquestionable that like jesus is the real deal because if someone was just trying to act like the messiah like for one there's a lot of stuff that they just literally wouldn't be able to do but a lot of them would be like "Eh, well that prophecy doesn't matter that much i mean i can just say that i went to that town but no jesus jesus is leaving no stone unturned or as he said no i undotted and no t uncrossed like so they're the thoroughness of Jesus' mm-hmm. actions according to Scripture, that, that adds to his legitimacy, definitely. Okay, all right. Thank you. So I, I really like this. This is one of my favorite uh, incidences in this chapter, not only this chapter, but this book, because this, to a lot of people, to a lot of atheists and, and a lot of people that don't really uh, want to study in depth in, in Scripture and stuff like that, they see this as a contradiction of what Jesus has said in the past. So to get that in a bigger perspective here, Jesus tells Peter when Peter gets a little ticked off and he tries to, you know, boast what he said in the before, you know, I'm, I will die for you, Jesus, and cuts this dude's ear off. And we'll talk about this dude here in a second because I think he's important too. Um, when he cuts this dude's ear off, Jesus, put your sword away. No, those that live by the sword die by the sword. That's what he says in, in you know, in other books and stuff like that. But then you look in Luke chapter 22, and Jesus tells his disciples to sell their cloaks and buy a sword. So it's just like, wait a minute. If he's telling something here, put away your sword, Peter. Those that live by the sword die by the sword. Okay, that's kind of a a pacifistic type of mentality here. But then in Luke chapter 22, he says, go sell your clothes and buy a sword for protection. That kind of almost contradicts each other, right? But we need to look at the certain context. I've had a lot of people tell me Luke 22 proves that Christians should always carry a gun on them, open carry, have shotguns on their back, and ready for ready for war. You know, you know. But the the context of this in Luke chapter 22 is that when Jesus says, "Go sell your cloaks and buy a sword," it fulfills. It says in Luke 22, it fulfills a prophecy that Jesus should be counted among the transgressors, and so for Jesus to be officially counted as a quote-unquote rebel, and to be prosecuted as a rebel, as the zealot or as Barabbas, uh, as we note at the very end of this chapter, he had to have a sword to actually be a threat, okay? So it's basically you're crossing uh, a checkbox on the list of uh, what, the, what, the, what the Pharisees and Sadducees are labeling Jesus as a threat, Okay, so it's basically fulfilling the prophecy. But when Jesus says this, when when this is uh, when Jesus says, "Go sell your cloaks and buy a sword," two of the twelve disciples said, "We have two swords here." Jesus does not say, "Okay, go buy some more." We got to get everyone geared up. He says, "That's enough. That's enough." 
so here, here's some implications with that that I think that Jesus is holding firm, that there's no contradictions, that Jesus is a pacifistic type of leader instead of a ruler by the sword coming to conquer by death and destruction as some zealots and stuff like that said. So here's, what, here's the logic behind it. Two swords for 12 disciples and Jesus to protect them against thousands. That doesn't make much logic. They're not going to win. So let's say the the Sermon on the Mount. There's 5,000 plus people there. Two swords to protect 12 dudes and and Jesus doesn't make logical sense. There's a logic behind it. And two, when Jesus says that's enough, it's just enough to fulfill the prophecy. It's like, okay, we don't need to go out and just do all this stuff. So it's keeping the consistency of what Jesus is saying here in the garden about not acting in violence. Because we also have to note that Jesus is all about this upside-down kingdom. You know, and and this proves further this this telling that when Jesus says, Peter, put away your sword, that he is not contradicting himself in Luke. So one of the cool things about the three of us being here uh, doing this podcast is that while the three of us are similar in a lot of things, I mean, we're, we're not super different from each other uh, mentally, the three of us do have differing opinions in certain areas. Now, Tanner, I know your opinion on what I'm about to ask, so I want to ask Mason directly, not because I think you disagree, but because I straight up don't know your opinion on this. A lot of Christians do look at that that scripture, like as Tanner, you just said, so I won't repeat it too hard, that like Jesus is basically confirming that Christians should own guns. Do you think, Mason, that that belief comes from viewing uh, the Bible through a very American cultural lens, and do you think that's problematic? If you think that that's the case, well, a lot of people want to look at that as a very tunneled vision view. You either want to look at it as we should own guns and shoot everything that walks, and if somebody comes up to my front door or steps on my yard, they're going to get shot, or no, we shouldn't own any weapon because. Lord's going to protect us, and that's all we need. I mean, you have an American view, and then you have, in my opinion, a very extreme pacifistic view. But with that said, like I said, this is all my opinion. Doesn't mean, doesn't it mean dirt? But I mean, it means dirt to me. Well, you asked for it, so <laughs> we'll probably do a full episode, if not a series, on this concept yeah. later. So I just want like the super diet version of yeah, your opinion. Yeah. So right basically, now. I haven't when we come, if we come back to this later, and or when we do, um, I'll have my actual references where I can go back and show you some more of this. But there's places where, of course, you are to defend your family, defend your own people. Now, what I view as that and what other people view as defend is two different things, I think, because from hearing just conversation, especially, you know, I mean, we're just typical Americans. You know, it's either, you know, get them good or go home, you know, or let them get you. But here's my thing. If someone's threatening your livelihood, your family's livelihood, I, I firmly believe something should be done about that. But does that mean death? No. Mm-hmm. You can defend your family without killing somebody. Okay. Now, yep. there are times where that is the end result. But, I mean, as my personal belief, there are typically several ways to avoid 
someone dying but still defending your family. Yeah, I agree. So, and that's one thing, like, we, we won't touch on this much, but I could talk about this for, because this has definitely uh, been Like a, I said, this could be a very yeah. strong season two discussion. Yeah, this is definitely something that, that I've, I've dealt with in the past and struggled with because we have been so, especially in the South, being Americanized of, like, if you're not, you're not a Christian unless you've got AK-47s and a Gatling gun in the back of your truck. Oh, that's Russian weaponry, son. We can okay, get that sorry. Out of here. Well, yeah, AR-15s. AR-15. Yeah! Okay. But anyways, but the I don't like the word pacifist. I don't. I don't because to me, like you said, Mason, when you hear the word pacifist, you think extreme, right? Mm -hmm. Cowardice. That's not the case. And so I, I subscribe to the idea of non Christian nonviolence. And I think this is what Jesus is getting here. The reason why he is stating this because how our kingdoms and – and we get to this later because he talks to Pilate about this. And I think this is very important is that how are kingdoms established on an earthly setting by swords, by conquering, by – killing the other guy that's that's weaker so that I can rule. Jesus is coming to reign in a different way, in an upside-down kingdom, in a way that is completely nonviolent in the sense of like, put away your sword, Peter. This is not how I'm going to rule this world. This is not how it's going to come into, into play that I'm going to conquer death. This is not how I'm going to get sit on the throne is by your sword. She that dude. And this is what he says to Pilate later on. And I think this, this continues the motif of Jesus being a nonviolent affirming uh, leader. So let me let me talk about this. I think this is cool. Let's get off the topic here. Malchus, the dude, the servant of the high priest that the, that Peter cut the dude's ear off. Do you think do you think he's important? Uh, as a person, I don't think, but as an individual that got their ear cut off, and then it's not. Uh, specified in the book of John, but uh, in the other Gospels, it's specified that Jesus took that ear and uh, mm -hmm. healed it back onto his head. So the action was important. I don't necessarily think that, like, I mean, I, mean, I acknowledge that since this individual was given a name that I'm probably wrong, but just, like, this is my face value reaction. Like, I don't, I don't think that there's too much importance to the person himself. Okay, so. Prove me wrong. I, I'm not going to prove you wrong. I mean, this Malchus, he's not a Paul. I mean, I, I wouldn't think. There's nothing in recorded history or scripture that this dude was like some kind of big missionary, and he may have done something. I don't know. But the reason why I, I think this dude, I think this is kind of interesting, and I find this very fascinating, is that per what a lot of scholars have, a lot of scholars have said that because he is named, that he became a believer. Because a lot of because because a lot of times in in Acts and in the Gospels, people are named because the early church recognized them as somebody, and so the the question begs to say: Do you think that tragic event for Malchus, which he's a slave to the priest, changed his view after Jesus healed him? Well, I'm sure you can't really. Deny I mean, come on, awesome happened there, dude. If someone's chopped off your ear, and the Son of God picked it up and placed it back on your head and said. Here's your earbuds back, bud. You know, I mean, I think that would be kind of life-changing to me. Yeah. So, I, I mean, a lot of scholars say that that because of this event to this dude, he became a believer. And he may have had some kind of function in the church, in the early church. And I thought that was kind of just interesting. It's like, huh, I guess that's, to me, that's that's just, it, it goes back to that personality thing or personal aspect of, of Scripture that that. This is more than just a story. This is a personal story because uh, this dude, Malchus, he was a dude, and he found faith in Christ because of a tragic event that happened because Peter did something stupid. Yeah, well, Peter gave him the Van Gogh treatment. 
Okay, never mind. <laughs> never mind. Right. Um, I don't have anything super awesome to say about verse 12, but I do want to acknowledge what you put in your notes because it's something that personally I didn't notice uh, until I was reading your notes. Um, on verse 12, it says, So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And you made that uh, comparison to him being bound like Samson. But, of course, these bonds don't have any power over Jesus, mm-hmm. despite the fact that he's not seen as like a super physically strong mm-hmm. uh, figure. So that um, that and he's being bound very, very voluntarily. Samson, it was very much so against his will. Yeah, and Jesus was voluntarily bound, being bound. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that, that's a, a nice parallel there. And, you know, it's times like this where I look at uh, Scripture and all the different references and stuff, and I'm not going to lie, there are times where I'm like, is that really a reference or is that just a stretch? Because, honestly, like, this might just be a personal problem, but I almost get desensitized to all the hyperlinking in the Bible. Like, when people are, um, like, saying this Scripture here is just like this Scripture over here, which is just like this Scripture over here, which is just like this Scripture over, over here. Like, it almost overloads my brain to the point that I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, are you just, like, stretching stuff out here or whatever? But no, like, the Bible is a very immaculate work of art that has all these hyperlinks because, again, just like Jesus fulfilling all these uh, mundane, mundane? looking uh, prophecies, it adds to the legitimacy of it. Like, mm-hmm. the Bible is reflecting on itself all these different times, even though it's been written by so many different authors that were by no means, like, by no means, uh, like, uh, linguistic scholars or English scholars or anything like that. Like, this stuff happened because the Holy Spirit's working through the Scripture, not because these, these dudes are super smart and be like, all right, now I'm going to make this compared to this compared to this. Now, some of them do. But overall, this is the work of the Holy Spirit within Scripture, adding that um, that legitimacy to mm-hmm. the words. So that's just that's something super cool. You making that uh, uh, comparison there to Samson? I'm like, eh, coincidence, or was it? <laughs> well, I mean, in the Old Testament, you have a lot of quote unquote Jesus types. Yeah. You know, you don't have. I mean, obviously, we're not saying that there was any. I mean, Jesus. that's the basis of the Old yeah. Testament. So I mean, you. I mean, you look at David. David was a man after God's own heart. I mean, that's, he's a Jesus type. You look at Melchizedek. He was a man. He was a, 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 a priest and a king, just like Jesus is a priest and a king. That's a Jesus type. So you see these Jesus types all throughout the Old Testament, and so you see the parallels. Even with the jerkhead Samson, you see almost a Jesus type as a judge and a, a conqueror of things. He was a lions, conqueror. and I don't know. He picked up some gates, man. <laughs> Uh, we'll move it al- uh, along just a little bit to verse 15. We'll read through 18 real, uh, right quick. It says, Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside of the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples. Uh, disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. Now, Tanner, you have uh, in the notes here that um, the disciple that isn't named is presumably John. Yes. And part of me wants to disagree with that because it didn't make it clear that this, this disciple was extremely beloved. Uh, oh, <laughs> but, <laughs> it doesn't say beloved. But it does also say twice that this disciple was known by the high priest, so there's still that little humble brag going on there that, yeah. that fits with uh, John's personality throughout Scripture. Be like, and uh, this disciple, who I won't name, but had very good standing with the high priest, uh, was allowed in because he had very good standing with the high priest. Like that, <laughs> that does have that that John-esque yeah. characterization. 
But also, too, I also want to point, we made mention of Malchus, but there's also another possibility of why Malchus was mentioned is because since presumably John was a friend with the high priest, he probably knew of the slave Malchus. So that's another possibility, too, but yet I kind of like the he became a Christian aspect. We, we don't 100% know, but yet, like I said, I like the Christian aspect of that. One thing that I like, and this isn't like a super deep observation, um, but the, I love the descriptive language in this little passage when it's describing that charcoal fire. Uh, it allows me to like get a really, really good mental image going of uh, Peter during this time and how he's kind of operating undercover uh, in a way. And I, and I don't say that as a compliment, of course, because it mm-hmm. requires him to deny his uh, relationship with Jesus. But just painting that, that picture of him like standing around a fire with a bunch of people that like could find him out at any moment. It lets you really like kind of read into the suspense uh, in Peter's mind because it, in my eyes, it helps me kind of relate to him in a way. Like he's got to be super nervous. I mean, Jesus has been freshly arrested. And he's more or less Peter's on the run right now, yeah. and it doesn't take long for someone to be like, "Hey, aren't you one of Jesus' guys?" And he's like, "No, no, 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 no." Like he, I'd imagine he's probably still in shock from like seeing Jesus get taken away, even though Jesus gave him plenty of heads up. Like. This being the disciple that's always like the most boisterous, most boastful, like, yeah, Jesus, I got your back. I mean, goodness, he just cut a dude's ear off for Jesus and then got reprimanded for it. And then Jesus gets trucked away. Um, so Peter, he's he's got to be like on the edge of his seat, like cold sweat and being um, asked like if he's one of Jesus' disciples. Like, no, 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 I don't, I don't know the guy. And here standing around just trying to get warm and just, oh, man, he's got to be super nervous. So what do you think about the contrast between Peter in the garden basically saying, I'm about to kill all you fools if you get in the way of my Jesus and him right here in the courtyard like, uh, Jesus who? Yeah. And, I mean, that's got to come from the fact that he feels invincible when he's around Jesus. Like, nothing could go wrong because Jesus is here, right? I mean, it's like when, uh, when he walked on water. I mean, yeah, his faith faltered, but he got out on that water. And as much as I would love to say that if, like, Jesus was there in the flesh telling me to walk on some water, like, my knowledge of physics and how water works is probably going to get in the way quite a bit. Be like, that's literally not how water works, Jesus. I mean, I'd like to say that I would have that faith, but I don't know that. I've got some personal application of that. Do it. So what happens, because obviously Peter felt removed from Christ, and Peter feels safe with Christ, and it seems like it kind of boasts his ego a little bit and stuff like that. What about us as Christians, when we feel almost distant with the Lord, when we feel distant from, from you know, try, and from His presence, we get almost cowardice in, in, in certain things. When we're not studying our scriptures and we're not building you know, our foundation upon the rock, and those waves start tumbling and rolling down just like it did for Peter here, that house can crumble real quick. You may feel safe and secure and it's built up, but yet, you know, if you're not having that foundation, if you're not putting that foundation upon the rock and that that difficulty hits you, you're going to crumble, man. And I think that's what happened to Peter here. That's what happened to Peter in the storm was what when he was away from Christ, he was no longer at peace. When he was away from Christ and he felt he was vulnerable at that. And I think that's that should be a not a not a warning, but more of like a encouraging encouraging thing of saying, "Hey, if you want peace, if you want to feel strong in the midst of the turmoil and if you want that that house to stand in the midst of the storm, put your foundation in Christ. Know that he is still there, even when it feels like he's not. Mason Boo, I need your sultry voice. Can you read okay. verses 19 through 24? The high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world, always taught in synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet. 
and in secret I have said nothing. Why do you ask me? All those who have heard me from what I said to them, indeed they know what I said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Do you answer the high priest like that? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if I will, why do, that? Why do you strike me? Then Ananias sent him bound to Cyphus, the high priest. Is that it? Cyphus. However, uh, yeah, I don't know. Cyphus, C A I A P H A S. The big cheese. Yeah, I don't uh, know. Th- this uh, this scripture, I like this because the attitude of Jesus is the attitude that someone that knows they've done nothing wrong gets to have. Like this, this is what happens uh, when you never speak a word of lie in your life. Like you, just mm-hmm. always the truth, always upfront, like always genuine. Like Jesus is out here just saying, like, have I mean, I haven't really kept anything secret. Like if you're gonna accuse me on anything, like. Grab some witnesses. I've been pretty upfront about my beliefs and what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And when he gets hit, he's just like, hey, if what I said is wrong, then say what's wrong. But that's not the case. So why, why, why are you hitting me? You know, I try to put – now, what do you think was going through Jesus' mind? Because this is the first time that Jesus got hit. Like this is the first actual violent action that has ever been towards Jesus. And this is like – breaking the ice of the whole kit and caboodle. Because, I mean, it makes, I mean, it's like after Jesus got hit, he says, why are you hitting me? I haven't lied. Prove it to me that I have. You know, it's just like, if this is how it's going to go, prove to me that I'm wrong. Yeah, I never thought about that. I, I, it had never registered to me that, like, that was the first time he had, had uh, that he had been hit or harmed, uh, as far as we know, at least. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, it doesn't say in Scripture that he has, like, a specific reaction to getting hit, but that, yeah. that verbal reaction he has. If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? So if you want to read into that, you could see that Jesus is challenging, like, on what moral authority are you hurting yeah. me? Yeah, because he, he's not only is he asking it towards, like, the unnamed official guard or something like that, but he's also asking that towards Ananias. He's asking that kind of twofold. It's just like, so the, the question he's asking is kind of exposing their shameful the shamefulness of the truth that he's completely innocent and that they're like, it's, it's like the Ananias and the Sanhedrin, they're trying to put the standard that he himself, Jesus has placed in the past. And so it's just like, you're kicking against the pricks. It's like, Oh, you're basically breaking the law against the lawgiver. It's like, how foolish can you get? Was it? Uh, smacking the hand that feeds you or something like that. What's what's that phrase? Bite the hand that feeds bite you. Bite the hands that feeds you. Smack it, whatever. Yeah, bite the hand that feeds you. That's basically what they're doing here. And I, 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 thought, I thought, what do you think about this? Is that they brought him towards Ananias, and Ananias is nobody, really. He is the, the he's basically the past, like, say, if, you know, let's just say that the president is Caiaphas, you know. Ananias is a president from, like, a couple years ago. He's a nobody. It's basically he's the I think he's the father-in-law or the grandfather of Caiaphas. He's the guy that was he was in power of the court, Sanhedrin court before Caiaphas. So like, what do you think? The, do you think there was kind of a reason there why they, why they bring him towards Ananias? Well, it. You think it's more like a respect thing? Like maybe he had more respect than Caiaphas or something? Well, I started talking as if I had an answer, but like I I don't know. I don't know. It may be it may be just something kind of silly. It's like he may be the first. Sanhedrin dude that was there and like 
let's let's get him let's get it rolling let's get the ball rolling i don't have enough historical knowledge to either. speak on that i don't either <laughs> well, let's get back to peter though because he his his story is yep. about to continue unfolding uh, verses 25 through 27 reads now simon peter was standing and warming himself so they said to him you also are not one of his disciples are you he denied it and said i am not one of the servants of the high priest a relative of the man whose ear peter had cut off asked did i not see you in the garden with him Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. So there you have that prophecy being mm. fulfilled of Jesus saying, you're going to deny me three times before the, the rooster crows. Um, but more specifically, I, again, let's let's work our way into Peter's mind here. When it makes it clear, like a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? There's association. It's like, yeah. dude, I saw you. Which that makes that does make me wonder, like if Peter knows this dude is a relative, because even though it's specified in scripture, Maybe. there's I mean there's not necessarily any reason that Peter would know that this guy has a reason to to know who he is. So, on second thought, that that might not have been as stressful. But I mean, still Peter's getting mm-hmm. like called out fresh after Jesus has been arrested, so there's still plenty of nerves, I'm sure. Well, I mean, what what is it like if you're caught in a lie, and you're basically and, and you're and you're accused of that, and then you're caught caught in a lie, you kind of buckle down and you kind of look dumb. And I think that's what happened to Peter here is like, he's looking stupid. He's yeah. looking like an idiot. And that's a beautiful contrast between what Peter's going through and what Jesus is going through. Because Truth and a lie? Yeah. Because, I mean, for instance, look, because, I mean, at this moment in America, let's just be real, there's a lot of people going through the, the courts politically right now. True. And when you watch these uh, videos of all um, these high-up officials, people that you would imagine are very smart, very learned um, very intelligent, experienced people like being asked questions in front of the court. What do you What do you hear? Way too dang much. I don't know if y'all have watched these court hearings, but not I, really. But I'm sure if you said it, I'm I'm sure we could relate. I don't recall. I don't recall. I don't recall. That's the answer to oh, literally okay. everything. Like they just they're, they're pleading the fifth over here. And be like, uh, where were you on this date at this time? I don't recall. Is it true that you did this thing that <clears throat> you've literally admitted to doing like five million times in the past? I don't recall. Hey, did you do this? I don't recall. That's the answer to literally everything because that's the one response that like no one can like outright do anything to you. So basically, if you're guilty, you just say you don't remember anything. Like that that's that's what yeah. you do. So Jesus, his response at all times is like I I've, I've done what I've done. Uh, grab some witnesses because there are plenty of them. I'm not going to deny any of this because I've done all of this. Like you say that I'm the king, why do you think that is? Maybe because I am the king. Like why are you hitting me? I'm right. <laughs> it's like Jesus is doing the interrogating instead of they are. Yeah. And then Peter is giving the equivalent of I don't recall all yeah. the time. Like, he was like, hey, are, are you one of Jesus' disciples? Uh, 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 I don't recall. Let's, no. I also want to point out in Matthew chapter 26, verse 74, Peter did not, it, and this is, the, I think, uh, you know, it doesn't say this in, in John, but in, in Matthew, it says that Peter denied with cursing and swearing. So he was probably using some explicits here that were not of a Christian standard, yeah, as which, per se. And that, that does bring an extra layer to it uh, that I think is valuable. I, I meant to bring that up earlier but forgot, so thank you for that. Because if he's being called out uh, for being a Christian, like what's a good way to get people off your back? Act like someone that isn't a Christian. Act, act like not a start, Christian. Start throwing the explosives yeah, around. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that that's a, oh, an oh, extra oh. step there. Do you think that we kind of unknowingly do that today? Oh, 100%. Yeah. Like that. Sadly no enough. question about it. Yeah. I, I think there's sometimes that we can relate to Peter a little bit too well, and sadly. Even worse, I think there are a lot of people, um, and I, well, I say even worse, but I don't, I don't want to straight up attack this because um, I'm aware that I don't know everything. Like, I, I'm not going to speak as though this is like 
scriptural fact, but I'm just going to put it out there. Like there are lots of Christians out there that view these certain things in the world that some Christians view as being unchristian acts. Um, like just, just throw some examples out there, and we can talk about this in other episodes uh, more in depth, but like drinking or mm-hmm. cursing. Like there are arguments to be made that those things aren't anti-Christian actions. Let's mm-hmm. put some air quotes there because I know a lot of people uh, have different views on that. Um, you have these areas in Christianity where we like to normalize certain things that while they might not necessarily be bad and might not necessarily be unchristian acts, when people see you do those things, you're not labeled what, as a Christian. What, what does it make them think? Yeah, and that's where this, like, and like I said, this is a conversation, a yeah. stumbling stone, and Peter with a daggum stumbling boulder. Yeah, which it's funny. Oh my goodness, that Jesus said, "You are the rocks. I'm going to build the foundation of the church." But instead of being a foundation, he ended up being like a, a stumbling block for people. Yeah, and and Paul points this out as well. Yeah. Like he he makes it clear that there are things that you can do that. Even if they don't affect like your Christianity, that that's fine. But if you're around other people that it will affect negatively, don't be a stumbling yeah. block to them. So th- this is addressed in Scripture, but we can talk about that in another episode. Yeah. So I'm, I'm going to read verse 28, and then Matthew or Mason can uh, start in verse 29. But 28, I, I kind of saw this as uh, uh, a little bit ironic. So in verse 28, it says, uh, Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters or the uh, praetorium. Uh, it was early morning. They did not enter the headquarters themselves. Otherwise, they would be defiled and unable to eat the Passover. So so here we are at this moment. I want to kind of set a timeline. So we, Jesus has already been interrogated by Ananias. A mock and hasty trial in a two-part series, first by Caiaphas, and the second was uh, secondly was the official by daylight meeting with the Sanhedrin. Now to the Roman governor of the Praetorium, the headquarters of Pilate, the uh, governor's headquarters type deal thing. So I thought it was kind of interesting that the religious priest in the Sanhedrin did not want to enter into this Roman government headquarters, the Praetorium, so they would not defile themselves. They may be corrupted. They remain pure. And I thought that was so tragically ironic because it's like, wait a minute, they're killing the Son of God they're already freaking defiled. And it's like, huh, I don't want to go into the Roman headquarters because I'm going to be unclean. You're killing the daggum son of God here. And, and you're, you're saying, I don't want to be unclean. Yeah. And it just, it just boggles my mind. It's like, how ignorant and arrogant are you? They're blind because they don't see the truth. Yeah. They don't see the, they don't see the truth of Christ, and so they're they're blind to the aspect is like they're defiling and corrupting themselves by doing these actions. Yeah, and that's it's beautiful to see because I mean you have all throughout Jesus. Beautiful. Well, I, I say it with a drip. Well, of sarcasm. okay, but <laughs> well, yeah, because uh, you see throughout Jesus' ministry, like. Um, the Pharisees are constantly like letting them know, like, "Hey, you're breaking the law." And Jesus' response, like, "Buddy, I am the law. Like, I'm." Shut up. Mm-hmm. Stop Stop worshiping the law. Worship me. I'm, I'm better. I'm better. I'm, I'm bringing in that new law. And even though, like, Jesus had all this time to minister and make it clear, like, this is the new law. This is what I'm ushering in. You still have in his final moments uh, before his crucifixion that people are still, like, just abiding to this law as if it's their God to the point that they are, well, air quotes, killing God while disobeying God, like, no. while obeying God in their own eyes. Uh, so, yeah, that, that irony there is uh, definite. But uh, verses 29 through 32 is our next little block of Scripture. 
says, So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Mm-hmm. So we have some more irony here. So let's just be clear that Pilate's not a cool dude. Uh, I mean, throughout history, he's known as a cruel, ruthless, and completely jackwad. Okay, let's just let's just point that out. So we're not going to let's not mistake in his trying to get down to the bottom of this and as as sympathy. This is just him doing his job. He doesn't care two pennies worth of religious aspects of the Jews. He's like this, just, this was pretty much below him. As far yeah, as he's, and he's just basically like a like a management. It's like, why the heck are you bothering me with this? Which isn't that just awesome though? Like the Son of God is being put on trial is going to be crucified for sins past, present, and future. And Pilate is just like, this isn't even worth my time. Like, even in his final moments, like, this is that upside-down kingdom. Yeah. Him, him being crucified as a servant. Like, even when, like, it's hitting the climax of his ministry, he's barely even getting recognition from, like, the Roman government. It's yeah. just like, I'm washing my hands of this. Y'all just, whatever, have a yeah. murderer instead. Like, it was just tossed aside. Yeah. So, and, and Pilate, he asked the question, what accusations do you have against him in the Sanhedrin basically evade the question because they know, I, th- I think deep down they probably know it's like, I don't have enough evidence to say he's guilty of charged. They say, well, he's a, we wouldn't bring an evildoer to you, would we? So kill him, you know, do something. And Pilate, he tells, he tells them to kill Jesus themselves, but they continue with the purity claim <laughs> of, we're not supposed to, I, I don't want to be defiled. And I it says it fulfilled the, the, the prophecy of Jesus of how she should be killed. I was like, what, what is this? So in John chapter 12, verses 32 and 33, it says, And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw everyone to myself. He said this to indicate how he was going to die. So two things. Jews, how do they kill people? By blaspheming, by, by blaspheming or anything of that nature. They stone. Okay. That's not being lifted up. That's being cast down. Romans kill by crucifixion. So not only does this parallel to Moses and the serpent upon the staff, like we talked about before, this also predicts of how he's going to die by the Roman government. Does that make any sense? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, I definitely agree. Uh, I just want to make one little caveat here because some people, if you read the, the Gospels, you might think that this is contradicting because here it says that their poor accusation was a zero ac- accusation of Jesus being an evildoer. But yet in actually Luke chapter 23, they actually do make an accusation towards Jesus. And it is that Jesus was teaching people not to pay their taxes. That was their accusation. But the thing is, though, in Mark chapter 12, verse 17, Jesus says, given to Caesars, what's Caesars? So the accusation was a lie. So it's like y'all's 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 accusations suck. Like if you're going to like put someone on trial and and put someone on the stand and try to get them killed, I mean, can y'all like puff up your game a little bit, please? Verses thirty-three through thirty-five. Uh, then Pilate entered the Praetorium. How we do? How do we say that? Because I know Praetorium. Mine just says headquarters. Yeah, the, the headquarters. The, yeah. Okay, I'm gonna substitute it. The headquarters. Then Pilate entered the headquarters again, called Jesus, and said to him, 
Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you uh, this concerning me? Then Pilate, Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priest have delivered you to me. What have you done? There are a few ways that you can read Jesus' response there, but the way that I choose to is because I'm about to bring some sassy Jesus into the equation here. Uh, you have Pilate asking, So are you the king of the Jews? And then Jesus was like, Oh, shoot. Hey, my, my disciples doing their job? Like, y'all actually heard that? I, shoot, look at them out there ministering. Nice. <laughs> you heard this? Nice. So, it only took however many years, but they... Oh, no, he, man, no Jesus ministry. Jesus was doing, like, quality control here. So it's like, he's he's asking. He's like, okay, so are you asking, or is it like you've heard it somewhere else? So are my boys doing actually what they're supposed to be doing? <laughs> no. Quality control. I got fans? They talking about me? <laughs> nice. Nice. I didn't come down here for nothing after all. <laughs> but, okay, so we know that Pilate's already in the midst of this. You know, he's, he's already sent some troops with Judas, you know, and so he's already got some Roman involvement here. So I'm thinking what the reason why he's asking these questions and stuff like that is because it's like, I thought you were getting, like, a zealot. Like, Jesus isn't what I really expected you guys to place before me as a... Uh, I, can, I can agree with that. Uh, but personally, I, I'm still reading it as like mm. Pilate doesn't take this very seriously. It's, it's a joke it's, to it's him. It's more like I'm like, so they say you're uh, you're you're the king of the Jews. All right. Like I, I feel like there's an air of skepticism around uh, what he's saying. And I could be wrong. Yeah. You you could be right there. But I just well, I don't know. I mean, I read it. I'm wrong about a lot of things. But I mean, you got to read between the lines on a lot of this <laughs> stuff because it, it only gives you the information that it gives you. But um, I know that I just like gave the, the sassy Jesus answer, but I can also view uh, Jesus' response here. It's almost like he, he can have multifaceted responses um, where he's kind of challenging Pilate on the legitimacy uh, of the claim there. Because, I mean, this, this, of course, also like leads into me um, reading that Pilate doesn't really take this seriously. And Jesus is challenging that by going, what, what do you think that means? Like, are you saying that I'm a, the king of the Jews? Like, ask yourself what that means and do you believe it? Is it the truth? Like, Jesus is making his ministry clear even in, even in those moments uh, is another way you could read it, I think. So in verse, 30, in, in verse 35, he does make mention, and, you know, and I, I want to say, like we may mention before, that Pilate doesn't care about religious matters. He just wants to get the job done and, and get him dead if that's what the governors and the religious people want. It was just another day for him. Yeah, it's just another day for him. But the question that he asked Jesus is like, what have you done? Like, what's your, what's your charge, bro? And Jesus, he has an opportunity to basically slam this out of the park of like, like reveal everything. It's like, what have you done? Like he, he's basically pilots like left it open a blank page for Jesus to lay out the whole situation. So I think we need to look at the answer very carefully. So verse 36, it says, my kingdom is not of this world. Said Jesus, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. So he's talking about the kingdom. So Jesus' kingdom is completely different. I think he's this this answer, what have you done? What has Jesus done? Is that he's saying, I'm establishing, like we mentioned before in the past, this is a very kingdom-esque type of chapter, is that Jesus' kingdom is completely different than the way that the kingdoms are established and operate on earth. But just like the model prayer that he prayed, you know, our Father with art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that when that statement on earth as it is in heaven, we must be a counter-cultural Christian to a fault. 
And this is what Jesus is placing here. It's like we need to be in the world but not of the world in that statement. And this is one thing that I think that a lot of people miss get sometimes. And I think was it last week or two weeks ago we talked about like sometimes Christians like to be in an isolationist, an isolationism type aspect of like not of the world. So I'm going to be a monk and go in a cave and uh, die alone with me and my Lord. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying you need to be in your vocation. You need to be in school. You need to be wherever people are at and be of my kingdom upon earth. Yeah. Um, and then continuing on, because um, when Jesus starts talking about his kingdom, uh, I mean, if you have a kingdom, then what does that mean? And I feel like when he's saying that, like Pilate, he has an eyebrow go up. Like, huh, this, hmm. So verse 37, Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose, I was born. And for this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Mm -hmm. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So basically, Jesus gave him a yes. About the closest thing to a straight yes that Jesus will ever give anyone. And so, I mean, I I can hear Pilate the other eyebrows going up, like, huh, so this guy thinks he's a king. <laughs> In rags. But, it, but at the same time, at the same time, I don't think that Pilate's taking this dude seriously because what no. is Pilate's response to that? It's not, how dare you? You think you're a king? Buddy, I'll show you what king is. You, you think you know what a king is? I'll show you what a he king is. He thinks no. it's a joke. It's a joke. What's his response? Verse 38, Pilate said to him, what is truth? So I can, I can almost imagine, like, in this situation, like, Pilate's been kind of sitting back in his chair so far, asking these questions to Jesus the accused. And then when Jesus basically like confirms, like says, yes, I'm a king of this kingdom that is not of this world, I can hear Pilate putting his feet up on the desk be like, all right, bud. So what's this truth? <laughs> like, it, it's kind of a waste of his time still, but yeah. he's willing to get some entertainment. It's a very it. cynical response of like, what is truth? Like, it's it's a way that Pilate is saying it is, is like, Jesus, you're... You're a fool. Yeah. If you know what truth is, then you're a fool. It's the same way, and I want to point this out too, and I think that this is a question that is debated within the Christian and an atheist community, is that, and, and atheists have said this and stuff like that, is today, is there absolute truth or is there relative truth? And so that's the question I want to present to you. Do you think there's absolute truth or do you think it's all relative? I mean, it depends on the subject. I true, mean, obviously, true. when it comes to, to like Christianity and like yeah, the is there, the so, stuff, yeah. like that's absolute. But if you're talking about like, uh, like earlier before we were recording, I was talking about how I was having trouble getting into this certain video game. Like that's relative. I mean, just because I can't get into it doesn't mean it's not a good video game. Just like, uh, oh goodness, I'm I'm going to really spit some controversial fire here. How personally, I wasn't very impressed by the Lord of the Rings. Does, Are you kidding? Does that mean that it's not Wait, the, great? the film or the book? The, both. <laughs> I didn't enjoy the movies. The books were all right. Yeah, yeah, I said it. I said it. It's out there. Hashtag boycott. Matthew's fired. With you. Matthew's <laughs> fired. Um, yeah. But yeah, just because I couldn't get into it doesn't That's mean that those up. movies aren't like the gold standard. Because I'm fully aware that like directors love those those movies because they were like super well shot. And obviously, I understand that. Uh, 
uh, Tolkien pretty much invented an entire genre of fantasy, like perfected the genre, created an entire stinking language. I mean, that's why he wrote the books, because he was like, oh, I can't just make this language and then not make a world around it. So he just constructs this massive lore. I'm aware that that's amazing. And I'm aware that the work he's done has resulted in works that I love. Just personally, mm-hmm. I, I'm not big on Lord of the Rings. That's a relative truth. My, my truth is that Lord of the Rings is... Unimpressive, and I would get stoned by a lot of people yeah. for, for saying that too loud, but there you go. Yeah, and, and I, this is one thing, like, we know that 2 plus 2 is 4. I mean, that's an absolute truth. Is it? The- <laughs> oh, come on. And, and, and this is what Jesus is saying, and this is one thing I think that is a conversation that revolves around Christ. You know, when he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, no one can come to the Father except by me, Jesus is saying, I'm the absolute truth. But Pilate here is saying, nah. Yours relative, you're going to be a fade in the wind next next week. Like people are going to get over you, basically. And I think this is where Pilate gets it wrong. Just like a bunch of atheists, it's like, no, Jesus is absolute, and we have to make sure that we know where the absolute is. Yeah, I like what you're saying, uh, but I want to read through the rest of this chapter because yeah, 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 yeah. it Go gives ahead. some more context that we can continue yes. talking about that. Uh, so you have Pilate uh, clearly still not taking this very seriously uh, in verse 38, saying. Uh, what is truth? Like not getting mad at Jesus' kingly claims because he, it, again, like you said, he, it's just it's, it's just dust in the wind to him. Uh, and it says, after he had said this, he went back, back outside of the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. And that concludes the chapter. So again, you have um, plenty of proof there that Pilate is just another day to him. This is just some annoying paperwork. He wants to be somewhere else doing something more important. So he's like, ah, you, you guys have this custom. Do you want me to release this dude? Because, I, I mean, he's not really done anything wrong. He's just kind of crazy. But you have that response from the people that supposedly love the Lord being like, no, give, give us the robber. Give us this other dude that actually has proof that he's done bad crap and is probably going to do bad stuff again when you let him go. But this, this king of the Jews dude, no, kill him, kill him. Do you think we'd do that today? Oh, absolutely. Really? I think I think there. I mean, there's certain situations and cases for that. Because I mean, I mean, I agree, but yeah. I'm just asking for elaboration here. Okay, I'll, I'll give you a personal example, and this is where I'm going to throw out some faults of myself. Oops. Okay, so here's some confession time, I guess. So You're going Catholic? Well, I don't know about that, brother. Hail Mary. So. There are few Christians within that within the EMS environment, and if it they want to label themselves Christians, it's very cultural Christianity. They want to have that title of Christian, but not actually act that lifestyle out. Well, I'm not gonna say lifestyle, more of like that truth out. So let, let's just say that. So there's a lot of perversion, a lot of perverted jokes. And a lot of nasty jokes that are placed within people's ears and mouths that are being said throughout all the work environment. I mean, dirty jokes are placed everywhere. I hate them. I can't stand them. But I've been I've been witness to people making jokes about the Holy Spirit. I've heard people make jokes about Christ. I've heard people make jokes blaspheming God the Father, and it burns me up. Which it should. That's righteous anger. That's righteous anger right there for me. But there's been times where I've done nothing. I don't I don't smile, I don't laugh, but yet I don't say anything. To me, that's just as bad of saying, of laughing along with the joke. That's my fault. 
and that's a sin that I that I have acknowledged and I have moved uh, moved past and I'm trying and you know and it's like oh well I don't want to I don't want to be seen as an antisocial guy so I'm just going to sit here and you know not laughing I hate it I really do but yet as a Christian what do I need to do is speak up for my Lord and be like no that's not that's not that's not good shut up don't be saying jokes about the savior of this world that's my fault and i think that we as 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 a people have done that almost passively and actively in the sense of we see something that goes against scripture or doctrine or as people making jokes blaspheming the lord or mocking christ not saying something is just as bad of saying it ourselves what is it is it paul or timothy james it's in james James chapter 4, verse 17, it says, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. And that's what I think a lot of times in the church has done. And they have just to pacify people and not to offend people, or I don't want to be seen as, as Peter would call it, one of your followers. We have not spoken up against things. And I think there's sometimes that we as Christians, we need to speak up. Um, and I mean, obviously, I, I agree wholeheartedly. And me, I look at the subject um, like in terms of who was Jesus and what was he doing? I mean, he was coming to usher in a new law when people were really just married to that old law and not to the reasons that, that, that the old law existed. So there are two ways that I look at it. What if um, Jesus just straight up had not come to earth yet and he chose now to do it? Oh, he would 100% still get crucified. He'd, he'd, it'd happen 100 times faster <clears throat> because... I mean, shoot, we still adhere to the old law as though it's an idol today. So imagine how much worse it would be if humanity was allowed to go for an extra 2,000 years abiding to that old law as if, as if that is the God. The, the words themselves are God instead of being um, inspired uh, by God and being given purpose by God. Yeah, we'd 100% do it. But even if Jesus just had his second coming and rather than like, depending on what your uh, eschatological beliefs are, like no no rapture or anything. Maybe there was like a, a seven-day free trial of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ coming down. We would get told that a lot of the things that we believe are false. Like I'm not going to sit here and pretend for one second that like I've got it figured out. Like Jesus 100% would find plenty of faults in my theology. Um, and I feel like that would not be taken lightly by a lot of people. You would have a lot of very um, rich like mega pastors that would get called out by Jesus and – I don't know, man. Maybe one of those um, uh, rich dudes would be like, "My money is more important than this dude that claims to to know things and is getting some mm-hmm. some viewers off of my show." You would have, uh, and I'm not just hanging out a televangelist to dry. I'm just that's the the low hanging fruit that's easy to hit. But I mean, there would be plenty of people that would be very offended by Jesus. Everyone would be offended by Jesus. I mean, Jesus made it very clear: like the world hates me. And the world will hate whoever follows me because mm-hmm. if you're following me, then you're going to be spouting things off that the world hates. So, yeah, I mean, no matter what the circumstance would be, I believe that we would absolutely crucify Jesus again, as hard as that is to say. Now, again, personally, I would like to think that I wouldn't be in the crowd, but just like how I said, uh, I'd like to think that I'd be able to walk on water in Jesus' presence. I can't say that for sure because it, it's very different when you're the person in, in the situation. You can, you can talk all day long. Peter talked all day long. And he did walk it every once in a while. But mm-hmm. if even Peter can sink in, into the ocean when he's got Jesus within arm's reach, I doubt that I'd make it to within arm's reach. So I'm going to 
veer off the norm of what we've done because I mean I think we're closing out with this episode. I want to kind of veer off a yeah. little bit. So I know we've we've read we've we said this at the beginning of the podcast is that like, the disciples' viewpoint at this time is completely hopeless. They have zero hope whatsoever. Peter basically cusses and and uses some foul language to prove that he's not a follower of Christ. He sees it's that this past three and a half years have been pointless. You know, they're just and and it seems almost like there's no 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 sense of following anymore. But us now, we have certain hope now because we know the end of the story. So I want to view I want to kind of veer off and say if there's any listeners right now that has zero hope and feels like there is no absolute truth that my life is just relative and passing by and has no sense, no hope whatsoever, reach out to us. You know, you know, email us or do something because, I mean, we would love to talk to you and, and try to lead you in a way and, and show that, you know, that there's hope in the name of Christ. And that we will see this in the, in, the, in the continuing of John, that there is hope restored in those that have been broken. And then we see this, especially with Peter. Remember Peter, because this is the last time we hear of Peter until the basically the end of the book, and he's a completely different guy. And so I encourage you if you if you if you if you don't have any hope, trust in Jesus. Contact us if you need any help with anything, research material or whatever. We would love to talk to you. Yeah, you can find us at uh, the links that will be in the show notes. So we got our Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, we got the email as well. It's it's all there. You can click on it and find us really easily like that. Uh, but. This has been uh, chapter 18. Um, we're going we're gonna to talk more about the awesome power of Jesus. Mason, how about, how about you, you give us the magic words? Peace out.